You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is October 6, 2021. I'm here with my colleague, Roberta Herzberg. Uh, Bobby is going to provide for us a very unique opportunity because she represents, she's a living embodiment of blending of the three traditions that influence us so much here at George Mason in the Rochester School, the Bloomington School, and, and the Virginia School, plus an overarching idea of the Hayekian Research Program. So I'm really thrilled to have this conversation with you, Bobby, and so thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to go back to the beginning. <laughs> so it's my understanding that you were an outstanding, uh, you know, talented uh, young student in Washington State growing up, and you had a chance to go to Pomona College, which is one of our elite uh, undergraduate institutions in the West Coast, and you were a STEM student. Uh, but how did you then end up from a STEM student to then doing, you know, political science and economics? Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how Pomona would be because I hadn't been around people that had gone to college and things. So I think it was a big surprise to me to find out what chemistry meant at Pomona College. And what it meant was pre-med. And I had very little interest in being a doctor. I wanted to be an academic. I always wanted to be a teacher. And as I aged into college age, the age I wanted to teach kept getting older. Maybe I was used to kids by that time and said, oh, I don't want to teach that level. <laughs> so I kept advancing. And so when I got to Pomona, it wasn't geared towards that. And it didn't, it wasn't as exciting as my high school. We had a PhD, um, do a doctor in chemistry teaching our high school class. And he was very interesting and very we did all kinds of interesting experiments. I blew up the lab at one point in the nature <laughs> of high school kids. Yeah. Um, so that was very interesting. But when I went to Pomona, that's not. It was, you know, traditional chemistry that you need to do pre-med. Not very interesting. But I, I took many classes because Pomona is very much about liberal education. And I found political science and economics to be very interesting to me. And so I ended up starting to take more of those classes and fewer of the chemistry and over time ended up in political science. And I was interested in comparative politics. I didn't realize I was interested in the kind of public choice or rational choice until I went to graduate school. One of our faculty at Pomona, uh, Dan Masmanian, had gotten his degree at Washington University in St. Louis. He was a, a John Sprague student. And he said, oh, you should apply here. And it was one of the places I applied, and they gave me money. So I ended up going off to Washington University um, and realizing that political science and political economy had been transformed into math was useful. 
and empirical and theoretical, and all of a sudden these worlds came together. So I didn't realize it at Pomona, but I very much realized it by the time I got to graduate school. Yeah. So. And you were able to use that the skills honed in your STEM background to be able to... Exactly. And that was a big part of even, if I understand right, the way Riker built the program at Rochester, he went out and found kids that were uh, Eisenhower, was it uh, Westinghouse scholarship yes. kids or whatever that he brought in to study with him so he could And do in this. fact, you know, Ken Shepsley had been a math major as an undergraduate, which was not uncommon in those early years. Yeah. And then it just seemed a lot easier to do that transition and see the world through those lenses because you weren't fighting the math. Right. They had the math. They were trying to learn the political questions and what was interesting and learning how to reflect those in their writing. And so I think that at the beginning, that really creates that uh, rational choice tradition. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because when you go to Wash U, um, it's not the same as you understand the Shepsley Weingast and Farrajohn and all those guys five years later. It's, um, it's before they're... Uh, before Ken moves to Harvard and Barry moves to Stanford and, and all these other kind of ideas. So it was kind of a new movement afoot. Um, they're still publishing in public choice, <laughs> still going to the public choice society meetings and, and, and being a major role in that. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of revolutionary feeling intellectually that the students had and the younger faculty had at that time. It was, it was amazing because they were so productive doing the kind of publication, as we see around here, people really very productive, uh, hitting in every big journal. Yeah. And yet, nobody wanted to do work in the field. I was Ken Shepsley's second student, but the first one to actually go to an academic career. And so he had been, I think, teaching at Wash U for 10 years by the time I came along. Right. And so... It suggests the degree to which they were sort of an unfound or undiscovered rich uh, program. And so I was very fortunate to be at those early years where I was a desirable commodity yeah. and um, I could see how a whole field developed and how they worked so closely together with people across the miles and they brought them in. Again, very much like our Hyatt program, bringing in the top scholars, and you they were the top. Jim Buchanan visited, Mo Fiorina, John Farajan were there, Bill Riker, um, Bates, everybody came through our program, and we all got to hear their lectures and, and experience them. And so you had this incredibly high-powered training and because there were so few of us, we got to explore and uh, enjoy and be included, and it became a very small family. Yeah. Once I was at the point of getting my degree, that was the point that now people had discovered rational choice, and people had discovered the sort of stars of rational choice, which were many and the job market had become very competitive for them. So after I left and went to IU, uh, to the Ostrom's workshop, after that, 
Barry went, uh, Barry Weingast went to Stanford. Ken Shepsley went to Harvard. Jim Alt went to Harvard. Randy Calvert went to Rochester. Right. So in essence, I my argument had always been, well, they just couldn't stand not having Bobby around, <laughs> so they all had to leave. Yeah, right. That was not the reason. Yeah. Uh, but they'd been discovered. Yeah. And uh, what they had built by having them all together never really was replicated at the places they went. Right. But the recognition of the discipline right. and uh, and the people that they would get to interact with and their colleagues, of course, provided that. But I that early incubation time it reminds me very much of yeah. GMU and the program here. It's a, it's a, it's interesting because during that time, you know, if I'm getting the dates right, which I think I am, but you have Barry developing the Industrial Organization of Congress. You have refinements of the theory of the core in politics. You have a solidification that what politics is really about is minimum winning coalitions. And so these, you know, it's all those ideas that Riker started in the 50s, I guess, and 60s. And now it's like coming to fruition with these guys who are all working on it. And, uh, you know, it, 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 those were all like right when you were all those papers are coming out as you're there and they're really developing them. And so it's pretty it must have been an amazing experience to be around. It them. was. And to see them in their incubation period, to see yeah. them presented as drafts in the way that we do our workshops yeah. and see the critiques and and uh, reworking of them and how they got so much better um, by that sort of interaction that they had at the time. It was interesting because it was the time where people were responding to the arrow problem of we can't have democracy because it's an impossibility. It will blow up social choice. And yet all these people who were studying politics and studying institutions right. and studying markets saw stability all over the place. Right. So how could you account for that paradox and that's where institutions come in. Right. And so you see the rise of going deeper than majority rule, going deeper than these general equilibrium kinds of right. concepts to specific features of the way in which people interact. And so I think that's what lent itself to then when I went to IU and working with the Ostroms, they completely characterized that whole school and, and created it right. and kept with it when others moved on. Right. So institutions were everywhere while I was in graduate school, but by the time I was at IU, Ostroms were doing institutions, right. but the rest of them had said, it's too messy, it's right. too complex, I can't do my math and right. do the proof system in the same way if I keep all that complexity. Well, there's a kind of intriguing idea about the way you study why it is that you get stability. So one way is that you actually throw yourself into the institutions that really exist in real operating democracies to see that, which is would require field work and things like that, which is more messy, right? And you then, you know, so it's one thing theoretically to talk about agenda control and other kinds of things like that, but then it's actually how does how are all the implicit institutions that are formed? And then again, Lynn was the one who opened that up. I, I don't want to get ahead of my questions here, but you know when she's making this distinction between rules in form and rules in use, 
right? Then all of a sudden you can actually see maybe the implicit rules that are under operation that elicit stability in a way that you wouldn't see if you were just looking at it, you know, formally. But I guess I wanted to get to you about the IU program because let me just ask a question about WashU. So did the Ostroms come through at that time? Yes. And so Lynn, um, it was right after, right when I first went to IU, was the period when Lynn became the president of Public Choice. Right. And so she was already in the mix. And of course, Vincent had already been the president of Public Choice. And Public Choice was one of the very few places yep. early on that would publish this rational choice work right. on politics and on voting. And so all of those people, as I said, small family, all very supportive of one another, yet also very critical of one another right. in that wonderful family way. Um, so she was the woman right. in the mix. Right. There were no others um, around. And so you were, everyone was aware of her, but it was still aware of her as with Vincent. Right. And so a plus one, plus one. Yeah. She was the plus one. Yeah. It turns out, you know, I don't think she, I think she played that role better than Vincent played that role. Yeah. Um, later on, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, I was going to say when we talk about family, it is true. And and I remember going to the public choice society meetings. I remember eighty six, maybe eighty five mm -hmm. or eighty six. I gave my first presentation at a public choice meeting. I looked up. And there was Jim Buchanan, Gordon Tulloch, so I already know they're there. But then there's Vincent Ostrom, Bill Riker, and James Coleman. Yep. And I'm pretty sure I was sweating very, very hard and trying not to stumble over my my words or whatever because I was like realizing this is not looking out at my fellow graduate students and giving a paper. I'm now giving it in front of these people, and I'm really, really scared that I'm going to screw this up. But it was amazing. But you know, so and there was this kind of excitement that they all had about being part of something that was going to change the way the social sciences were done. But they also had all their, I remember Julian Margolis was there and he was always like very uh, critical of, you know, what was going on in terms of like maybe the ideology that might sneak yes. in in different times or whatever. And so I was very conscious of him. I'm trying to talk about, you know, I'm, I'm doing this whole paper on, you know, uh, socialism in, in Russia and it's experience and there's Julian Margolis and he's like, I just saw him like attack someone for being like a free market zealot, like not too long ago. And so I'm like, all right, you know, like all nervous, but there's also dysfunction. So like with yes. families, you also have, but we could have a whole podcast on the, you know, the, the, the uncle that no one wants to have at dinner. We but, have a lot of those uncles. A lot of them, but, but we'll leave that for dinner conversation. Uh, but um, it better. is, I think that, so you get, you leave WashU. And I think it's fascinating the point you made out sociologically that Barry and, uh, you know, Ken, you know, and Randy and all them move. They migrate to other places, what might be called higher ranked places. One of the things that's unique about the Ostroms, as well as Vernon Smith and as well as Jim Buchanan, is that they resisted the individual lure that tried to pull them in order to keep a team together. So you leave WashU, it's small, tight community that's into this rational choice stuff, and then you go to... Uh, you, eventually Lynn is talking about a behavioral approach to a rational choice theory of collective action. So she's not doing the same kind of tight rational choice modeling that, and certainly Vincent isn't doing that either. 
he always had this artifact, the sciences of the artifactual, and which was a little different. They, you know, but that's all part of what you're now exposed to as you're coming in. So how was that interaction? Well, one of the biggest changes for me was the introduction of philosophy into our thinking about these things because there had been none of that right. at Wash U. And so I didn't realize the nature of the questions that they would be asking. And I think it really it created a, a challenge to how can you deal with these kinds of high-level questions yeah. in philosophy if you're addressing them with these very defined and refined yeah. methods that don't allow for the edges in the way that philosophy only lives on the edges. Right. And Vincent was the hardest thing for me to get used to when I went. But when I left IU to go to Utah State, at that point, I started to realize that I had gained more from Vincent than even from Lynn, because coming in, I understood Lynn, and she right. was always so fundamental and down-to-earth and empirical and willing to take on the theoretical proofs and the methods I was used to. She was the familiar, and I learned incredible amounts from her, but Vincent was the different. Yeah. And so there was so much more to gain that I didn't know. Yeah. from his perspective and what I came to appreciate is the degree to which her incredible insights are grounded in that philosophical challenge yeah. that Vincent always brought to the work. Yeah, I mean, I, my original interest in Lynn's work was drawn mainly to this empirical side of how do we study, do field work on the operation of institutions and the difference and the great institutional diversity that exists in the world and how what we might see is that, you know, we have this these diverse set of institutions in form, but that they have some commonality so that there's, so what she did was she made the um, exotic seem familiar through the reasoning of the basic, you know, rational, some version of rational choice mm -hmm. and and institutional kind of analysis, right? Whereas, as Vincent was asking these big, deep questions about the nature of democracy and and the nature of how we do science when we mm -hmm. want to have a science like that, and there there's this interaction effect between the two of them, which you come to appreciate. But at first, it seems very jarring, you yes. know, because you know Vincent's sort of off over here, and you see, you don't see the the necessary connection unless you do a deep dive into Vincent's whole history as well and why it is he was asking those kind of questions. But, you know, when you came out of WashU, you were working on some very, you know, important ideas having to do with veto players. In particular, you know, in the minimum winning coalitions, you have players who are blockers of various different things and, and, and playing that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then also how that then is you're, you're trying to introduce that into this world of, applied research and, and, and yet also this theoretical idea of institutional analysis. Again, I think it goes back to this uh, notion of majority rule missing the boat in terms of the way in which people actually made decisions. Yeah. And I think that's why when I got to IU where the Ostroms were so sensitive to the way in which people governed that 
it made me start to think even more about the way in which we put in place mechanisms that allow us to challenge, allow us to slow things down, allow us to check out of control democratic power. And it was that out of control democratic power that almost all the core theory was talking about. But as we introduced all of these other components like veto power, all of a sudden you have possibilities and different kinds of outcomes that you can predict, but you can still use a regularized framework and theory to try and understand them. So how do they alter our earlier understanding of it? Well, they do by providing that protection, which then gets us into some of the interest in the freedom and the checks. So one of the first things that introduced blocking powers to me was Buchanan and Tulloch's calculus of consent have a chapter in my dissertation on because it was such an important recognition of the institutional framework of protection and freedom as opposed to just making decisions and majorities dominating. And um, up until that time, I had thought more like a majoritarian. Um, and this allowed me a much more refined and sort of subtle way of thinking about the range of institutions. But once that it gets introduced, then where's the end? Yeah. There are countless millions, zillions of institutions. How do you talk about all of them? And that's where I think moving to IU and the Ostrom framework and sort of Vincent's overriding philosophical frame allows you to start to make sense of lots of variations without having to describe every single one in terms of the formalized uh, notion of those rules. So I think that was an important transition that said you can keep some complexity, but you can talk about it in a very regularized and theoretical way. And that was the lesson of Lynn Ostrom for me. He had already published the theory of the compound mm-hmm. republic and yes. in inle- in the intellectual crisis before you're there. Yes. But is the meaning of federalism coming out? Or is it's that- coming out at that time. So I was there when that was going on. And actually, all of their involvement on federalism was a very big part of my years at IU. Right. And um, again, it made me also very sensitized. I'd come out being sort of thinking to myself as a congressional scholar. Um, and you do Congress because there's one, right? right. And you can talk <laughs> about the intricacies of the congressional institution, right. but you're not comparing it with lots of others. So you're not just talking legislatures. Yeah. And um, going there, and all of a sudden, this introduction into federalism and the states and the diversity of ways in which a legislature could act, all yeah. similar, but different. Yeah. Um, allowed me to start, again, thinking more broadly and realizing I probably didn't have the math skills to do the complex kind of math that it would be required to do that kind Uh of complex work. So how else am I going to do it? And it sort of created this need to, um, in a more Lynn and Vincent way, combine empirical analysis and and theoretical thinking shaped by rational choice. 
So it gave me a lens into the way of thinking about it, but a more narrative type of approach sure. that was going to be empirically based. It's interesting, you know, when you were talking about it, I was thinking about one of the ways to, you know, Tolstoy says that all families are unhappy, they're just unhappy in their own particular way. And I was thinking all like, you know, legislative bodies are dysfunctional, but they're dysfunctional in their own particular way. But they're also, they also work in their own particular way too. And and one of the things that, you know, so I'm always, I always remember, you know, uh, Lynn, as this, you know, great little quip, which was Mansur Olson mistitled his book. What he should have titled it was the theory of collective inaction, because yes. that's all about what are the limits to the ability to engage in collective action. Whereas what she was showing was how it is that these groups can engage effectively in cre in collective action. So, uh, one other uh, thing that I wanted to ask you about with regard to the Ostroms is is maybe a little far afield, but it relates to this philosophy thing. So one of the things that's fascinating to me is that, again, Lynn is working from a basic rational choice model. Vincent's working from a, you know, a, an actor center model. So the, it's not a collectivist model or a holistic model. It is an individualist model. It's not atomistic by any stretch because they're always inside of action arenas. But they also like took like people that like someone like Shepsley or Weingast would never like Irving Goffman. Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like in frame analysis and all these things like that. And they tried to bring all of that in to these conversations. And so one of the great thrusts of the excitement about the Rochester School was we're bringing science yes. to a field that didn't, that used to now be mushy headed and mm -hmm. we're going to bring logic and rigor to it. And now you get to a group of scholars and they're like, we're now going to mush up <laughs> logic and rigor a little bit because we want to capture something more about reality that must have been like a, a like a, a like a sort of an, a mind a mind quake for you in some sense yeah, right it was i think that that was one of the uh, interesting challenges of the time and sometimes you don't even realize that you're being challenged in that way you're just sort of i don't know what to think about this um and then later you sort of put it in perspective that it was mind quaking yeah. Um, and it's, I think it had to do with the notion of what is our purpose? Is it to have this very refined result? And I think it speaks to the Austrian school. I mean, these things are all linked right. and we see these links, but a lot of people never oh, see yeah, the, our don't. links, yeah. right? They, why would you put all those together? But what's linking them all together is this notion of complexity and um, capacity, optimism, that people do solve these things. Right. Yeah. So if people are solving these things, yet we think there are regular ways of thinking about them, how can we combine those together? Yeah. And that was, I think, the real um, thing. And that's why I think the Ostroms went so far afield in terms of interdisciplinary yeah. scholars coming to the table to work on it because they didn't think any single science right. was going to be adequate yeah. to actually answering the question. I mean, one of the things, you know, unfortunately, by the time that I am, uh, you know, interacting with Vincent, he's already, you know, very elderly and his hearing's going and things like that. And 
Um, but Lynn, one of the things that most amazing about her, she's just a lifelong learner, yeah. right? And and it's amazing because she was always so open to learning from all the other, um, you know, work that was going on and absorbing it and incorporating it. Um, so it's it's um, it's something else, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that was one of the things I also learned is their expectation was we were all students. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about yeah, that. If you could comment a little together. bit on the nature of workshop and, yes. and, and the cultural zeitgeist that, that dominated the Ostrom workshop and maybe compare it with some of the other ways that other branches of public choice presented, including the, the Buchanan group at the Center for Study Public Choice. Yeah, I think one of the big differences was they named it a workshop. They didn't want to center they didn't want an institute. Those had hierarchy. They wanted a workshop, flat, working yeah. side by side. So it was quite unnerving to new students. New PhD students would come in their first year, and they would be given an Ostrom paper to present in front of the Ostroms and discuss in a draft form. Right. These were not polished papers or articles. These were... Here, I'm writing on this. What do you think? Right. Tell me what's wrong with it. And they would be horrified, worried that they were going to get it all wrong and their careers would be over. <laughs> but that is not the way the Ostroms thought. The right. way the Ostroms thought is, you have new eyes. I haven't sort of made you, shaped you yet. Yeah. Tell me what you see. And they learned from that all the time. And so that was that openness and it culminated in the mini conferences where you didn't present your own work, someone else had to present it. So you heard what you actually wrote, yeah. which is very useful yeah. because we often think this is what we said. Yeah. I just had this experience last week on a paper. I thought I was saying this, I could give a presentation and they said, well, really what you're talking about throughout this is co-production. You're not really talking much about those other things, so right. why are you talking about it now? Well, maybe I need to put those other things in, or maybe I need to recast it yeah. in the way I actually was writing about it. And so they did that, and then you turned into a discussion and had to actually critique it. But in the beginning, you were supposed to be very accommodating, and that was their style. When, um, when I came here and started a seminar. I called it the workshop. It was modeled on their model, um, explicitly so. Um, and, uh, you know, over the years, uh, we've been very fortunate to have, you know, Paul Alajika join us here, and who was one of their students, and then to have you come here and join us. It's been a Lynn, you know, visiting here and, and, and doing stuff even, you know, the year she won the Nobel Prize, she kept to her obligation to come here in January as opposed to most people who would, you know, not uh, live up to that because they have their demands, which makes sense. We expected her to say, well, you know, the demands of my time are so much now, but um, but it's such a, a great model, this idea of, of uh, you know, basically that there's this seminar in which everyone is a learner and everyone can contribute to it and interact and learn, and you're not transcendent criticisms, you're engaged in imminent criticisms. And we haven't gone as far as to do the presentations of other paper, but that is a really good idea. I I would not have thought of it, and it was so brilliant when I saw yeah. it in action, because 
I present my own work, and people go, that's a good paper, but it's not the, the paper one you wrote. I wrote. Yeah, it's not the one you wrote. And <laughs> it would have been good if I wrote. Did anybody record it? You know, you sort of want to, maybe I should yeah. just stop writing altogether and just record what I, you know, the computer can write it. Um, you know, it's really helpful. And it makes you also very humble, yeah. you know, as a faculty member to hear a student present and go, yeah, okay. And so when you're presenting theirs or when you're critiquing theirs, again, yeah, yeah. it's good to so be it's, humble. It's, it's, it's very fascinating. I mean, if you think about our own seminar that you part, participate in with our graduate students, you know, we learn this lesson. The graduate students write a paper, and they say their paper is an empirical paper, and 30 pages of their paper is theory, and two, two you know, until so you're like, well, maybe what you're doing is different than what you think you're doing, and you exactly. got to go from there. And again, that is all from this idea of trying to grope and figure out, and, and as they put it, apprentice scholarship. Exactly. Um, one, one last question on this, though, which is, a uh, so I, I think it's fascinating, given especially how you, um, you know, we talk about like the, the, the Wash U group and then them. But like the reality is, is that, you know, Barry goes off to Stanford. One of his students is Jenna Bednar, yeah. who then ends up by writing about robust federalism, which is really like Vincent's work yeah. more than, you know. And so then there's that. And then Barry right now is writing a series of papers, which I hope, you know, we can have come here when the world returns. But it's about how economists need to recapture again concepts like liberty because yes. they've been so purged. So it's it's like this big, long circle that comes back to the kind of questions that you were raising about why Hayek is part of this, why Buchanan is part of this, and why Vincent and, and Lynn are part of it. And in Vincent and Lynn's work, like in the interview that we did, that is in the, the book Paul and I right. did in 2009, Family. Lynn has this line where she says that um, unless we can, our work can help improve the self-governing capacity of citizens and our work is of no value. And they have this idea that, that they were trying to grope for a science of association that was worthy of a, of, of a self-governing democratic society. And I don't think very few thinkers ever think along those lines, but that's necessary if you want to prioritize the democratic system, I think. You, well, you have to have faith. And if you're going to have democracy, you have to have faith in the parts that make it up. Yeah. which are people. Yeah. And most modern political science and democracy doesn't. Yeah, they don't have faith they, in people. They yeah. want people to have their votes, but after they vote, they don't want them to have any input. And the Ostroms were just the opposite. Right. They didn't care about voting. They cared about people actually involved in decision-making yeah. and that those decisions reflected the true interests of the people that yeah. were being governed. They yeah. were governing themselves. Yeah. True so. co-production exactly. of the society exactly. of freedom. Yeah. All right. So let's move on a little bit to your other hats that you've worn uh, besides teacher and scholar, which is that you've also been a leader and you've been a department chairman um, at a, a large state university. Uh, you've been uh, a president and officer in many learned societies, and you've been a foundation uh, officer and board member. And so how do you view this experience in terms of uh, institutional leadership within the realm of scholarship, along with the teaching and, and, and uh, writing? You know, Well, I always thought that it really helped me to... Um, 
put my hat in those rings uh, in part because, again, I make reference to our program here. Um, it only goes beyond you if you build something. Yeah. And you don't build something by yourself. You have to be a part of different groups in yeah. order to have it last beyond you. Because even incredible writers um, and great scholars, most of their work we're not going to read. Um, maybe one piece from them, and then we move on, and the next scholar will replace them, and we build on them. Um, but programs and the whole that make them up do live on. And so I think that that's one of the roles that is important to play. It takes away from a lot of the others right. sometimes. Um, it makes it hard. I think Lynn was uh, a great role model in that regard. She was a great administrator in addition to being a great scholar. But most people have a real problem doing both yeah. because you see, you see the world differently when you're an administrator than you do when you're doing right. your own personal work. Hard to compartmentalize. Work. It yeah. is, and to go back and forth and yeah. um, to be collegial sometimes when you've seen the, <laughs> the ugly underbelly yeah. of your colleagues. But like Lynn as well, you've been the lone female voice in a lot of these places, which is extremely important because you created space for younger females to have a have a career in many ways. But, you know, and that, that that's, uh, it's, it's, you know, going back to your learning idea and building, you know, we want to have a diversity of voices. We want to have a diversity of experiences because that's how science and thought progresses. But yet there's so many forces that lead to hegemony of like a particular thing because we just replicate ourselves because that's mm -hmm. what's familiar. So it must have been amazing challenges that you had in, in doing that as well. Yeah, it is because if you are in those positions, you sometimes got those positions in part because someone wanted to have a woman on the board. So you're the woman right. on the board representing all womankind. <laughs> um, and that's not easy to do. Right. Try doing it as a man even. Yeah. Um, but so there's the opportunity side of it. But on the other side of it, there is the frustration of you're the woman, you right. know, and we're going to listen, but we're not going to do that. Right. Yeah, because yeah. when there's one of you, it's really hard. And I think that's what a lot of departments discovered. If they had a couple of women, it changed everything. Right. But if they only had one, right. they almost always left. Because it was such a dis disconnect that they were always in this outsider role. And people were almost afraid to incorporate them and bring them in. But once you had multiples, you could bring them in and they could be. So I thought it was so critical to have more women, not because we need women's voices, but because you would never get that perspective unless you had people comfortable in doing it and not having it be an adversarial relationship. Yeah. And so the, I saw that as one of my roles is to make it friendlier and to encourage young women to continue to do this. Now, I had it easier because Lynn was there. Lynn had it impossible right. when she came, and the fact that she managed to do it was testimony to yeah. her personality and her perseverance and yeah. optimism that she could. 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's an interesting idea. You know, a lot of people are a little nervous about a lot of the initiatives that are going on in universities today, and I think it's misplaced at some level because at some in a theoretical level, like when you like when Lynn goes and does a diversity of international institutions, and she's studying common pool resources from Nepal to you know the Pacific uh, Northwest. Um, or Japan or Switzerland or whatever. So you learn something from, so you make the, the, the exotic seem familiar and then you also make the familiar try to seem exotic. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we learn. And I think this is the issue. And so for me, I mean, it's almost borders a little bit on somewhat of evangelicalism. And I don't mean that in a, I hope that's not interpreted in the wrong way, but you know, when I think about you know uh, certain messages of of trying to sell the good news, you know, across, you don't worry about the you know the, the ethnicity or the gender or whatever you're trying to sell the good news. And in some sense, this is what we're trying to sell with this logical structure from rational choice, but the nuance on the edges that is required for institutional analysis. And, 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 and that makes it so, you know, and we believe it provides this rich thing. And so like the Ostroms to me are, are fascinating because I, from a distance, as opposed to up close, they cared a lot about selling their ideas to the, to the, the profession in political science, but they also didn't care so much that they would temper what they had to say so they would they would work with the you know the uh institute of contemporary you know the self-governing society right. and things like that because that's where they thought it was at and so it was okay for them to publish books exactly. with this like independent publisher but at the same time then you know obviously governing the commons with cambridge and you know all these things it was so, about the work and, yeah. a, and about production and um it didn't matter how you did it yeah so the the one thing that i learned from them that i took the rest of my life was we all work and i work you work and if we can't do this if the discipline knocks us out because of that no problem right we'll go do our work in the workshop yeah we'll make furniture we'll right. build communities we'll right. actually create self-governing communities right. They had this perception that what they were, the pursuit, was bigger than the academy. Yeah. And that gave them incredible freedom. Yeah. Incredible yeah, freedom. It's a very, it's a very, but I mean, that, that also entails leadership. Oh. Uh, it entails taking your task as a teacher seriously, um, as a mentor seriously, you know. And um, so it was, there's a whole bunch. We could keep talking about um, those, but I I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you also about um, your relationship, intellectual relationship with Hayek. So yeah. you've also been involved with Liberty Fund. You ran the Hayek camp uh, for Liberty Fund. Yeah. Um, you were a fellow at Liberty Fund for a year, I think. Is that right? Yeah, or? A visiting scholar or whatever. Yeah. For, the, yeah. for a year on so, my sabbatical. Yeah. And so how did you get involved with Hayek and what was it about Hayek that you then mixed with these, you know, the, the young woman who was STEM to social science to then, you know, the Ostroms to then, you know, building this more mature, you know, yeah. thinker. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, well, that came out of we keep doing these theories, we keep making these predictions, and they never seem to work. And then I got invited to a conference, and I read Constitution of Liberty, and I said, that's it. Yeah. We're getting it all wrong because we don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. We need to um, understand that we don't know. And that knowledge problem, I thought, how could he have so much insight and get it so correct and not be recognized for that, not be raised up to, to the level he should have been. Now eventually, you know, he yeah. got the Nobel Prize, so it's not like he lived in the darkness. But I think those people that win the Nobel Prize, like Hayek, like Lynn Ostrom, had many years in the darkness. Yeah. A lot of years and in the wilderness. And they kept it. Yeah. That's the thing. They were they persevered with that. And so for me, Hayek and his emphasis on the importance of freedom to act, to self-govern, the recognition of multiple ways you could govern, that seems so familiar. And here it was coming from a theorist who was bringing these ideas of economics to yeah. these questions of politics and policy and how we govern yeah. um, that I thought I didn't realize there was economics that spoke as much to me yeah. um, as as that did because it seemed as I moved away from rational choice that I moved further away from economics. Right. But in fact, Hayek sort of brought yeah, me home, yeah, yeah. you know, um, yeah. so that was that was a really nice Feature. And then Jean Miller was going to do Hyatt Camp and invited me to um, share that with him, and then he passed away. And um, I continued to take it up the cause because it's um, Liberty Fund had always done these Adam Smith camps, right. and we got into the richness of Adam Smith's work in its entirety, and you could see the scholarship. So when we moved to Hyatt Camp, to look at Hayek's early work on all sorts of information issues and capital investment and all of the things that I know you're so familiar with, but then to move to these political questions and how those things fit together. Yeah. I don't think most people saw. They also didn't see like his sensory order, his psychology, and this, the logic that he brought out of the brain's processing capacity that becomes right. the we can't plan this because none of us have these capacities uh, to do that, um, that interdisciplinary nature. Right. So it, it just was magical to me. Yeah. And Did you see a connection between that and then like, Going back to when Vincent and Lynn are developing their action arena completely. and then the environment impinging on the actor's mind and completely. all Completely. And that need to know how the individual is seeing that. So the yeah. preferences and the, that gathering of information that comes from on the ground yeah. uh, in place and yeah. in use. Those things, I thought, spoke very yeah. much the to whole it. seen like a citizen as exact, opposed to a Exactly. So one last question, uh, and and is about policy. So in addition to your theoretical environment, all these things like that, you also have been active, and especially with health care policy. I understand that you know that was an issue, but what drew you into health care, and and you know what continues to draw you to that? Yeah, it's it's one of those areas that has all the parts that I am. 
So it starts, I believe people are rational. So all of the work that we can think about incentives and the way we structure it and uh, how we behave. Often healthcare in the policy world was talked about as if we aren't incentivized beings at all. We just need the healthcare we need. And so if we provide it socially, nobody will overuse and it won't cost more. That's of course not true because we do understand as we do in all markets, how that works. So um, healthcare allowed me to look at institutions. It allowed me to look at incentives. It allowed me to look at the dis- the uh, division between what the policy expert says and what actually is produced on the ground that comes out of that Ostrom school. And um, as a result, it sort of checked all the boxes. And we were in a period where we were going to do Clinton care. And then we were going to have right. all sorts of different changes in insurance, and that wouldn't make any difference. Well, I thought it would because of my training. And so I was that voice at the table that said, but what about? So everybody else is on the train to let's go do this in the health field. Right. And there weren't very many counter voices yeah. because most of the counter voices thought it was not good to be involved in policy, right. to be involved in government. But I can tell you, the people in policy are happy not to have any voices that say, what about this? (laughs) They'd love to take it and just ignore you. But having somebody that says, well, business might look at it in this way, or people might change their behavior in that way, or it might cost more, those are good voices to have. So I would encourage everyone to be involved, even if they're libertarian, even if they don't want to... think government is good, government continues whether you like it or not, <laughs> and having voices that say government could act in a different way is an important thing. Yeah, it's and one that's of those, the role it's I one brought. of those blockers. That's <laughs> exactly that's right. I was often that person that yeah. just stood up and said, maybe not. Yeah. Well thank you very much, Bobby. This is thank fantastic. You. And uh I hope that uh, you know, people that are listening get inspired and, and follow up on all these different ideas. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.